Welcome. Here is this past Sunday's sermon from Grant Memorial Church. Well, good morning, Grant Memorial. Welcome to church today. We're so glad that you have joined us. Uh, My name is Cam, and I'm one of the pastors here. Now, I was going to begin this morning with a joke about deja vu, but I think you've heard it before. Yeah, that's right. I went there. No regrets. Okay, that was bad. How about this one? Knock, knock. Deja vu. Knock, knock. Huh? No, that's not better? Okay. Well, at least I tried. And I have your attention, don't I? And we're all thinking about deja vu. And we're all thinking about deja vu. Now this morning, uh, as we continue our series in the Old Testament book of Genesis, many of us will likely experience a little bit of deja vu. As this morning's text is eerily similar to one that we've already read just a few months ago. And so as you follow along this morning, If our passage feels familiar, it's because it is. We have in many ways heard this story before. So with that said, I invite you to turn with me in your copy of the scriptures to Genesis chapter 20, starting at verse 1. Now, I'm not planning uh, to summarize the text fully as we go this week, verse by verse, and so please pay close attention so you get the gist of what's going on in the text. And so we're going to start... Genesis 20, starting at verse 1. Now Abraham moved on from there into the region of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. For a while he stayed in Gerar, and there Abraham said of his wife Sarah, she is my sister. Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. But God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said to him, You are as good as dead because of the woman you have taken. She is a married woman. Now Abimelech had not gone near her, so he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation? Did he not say to me, She is my sister? And didn't she also say, He is my brother? I have done this with a clear conscience and clean hands. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know you did this with a clear conscience, and so I have kept you from sinning against me. That is why I did not let you touch her. Now return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you and you will live. But if you do not return her, you may be sure that you and all who belong to you will die. Early the next morning, Abimelech summoned all his officials, and when he told them all that had happened, they were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham in and said, What have you done to us? How have I wronged you that you have brought such great guilt upon me and my kingdom? You have done things to me that should never be done. And Abimelech asked Abraham, What was your reason for doing this? Abraham replied, I said to myself, There is surely no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she really is my sister, the daughter of my father through not though not of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God had me wander from my father's household, I said to her, this is how you can show your love to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, he is my brother. 
Then Abimelech brought sheep and cattle and male and female slaves and gave them to Abraham, and he returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, My land is before you. Live wherever you like. To Sarah he said, I'm giving your brother a thousand shekels of silver. This is to cover the offense against you before all who are with you. You are completely vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his female slaves so they could have children again. For the Lord had kept all the children in Abimelech's household from conceiving because of Abraham's wife, Sarah. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and pray that as we encounter it today, you would teach us, we would grow, and we would leave differently as a result of hearing from you. Amen. Well, two weeks ago, when we last found ourselves in Genesis... We ended our discussion in chapter 19 reflecting on our own depravity, right? Coming out of our exploration of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. It was our conclusion that passages that paint a picture of a world gone bad and humanity practicing evil when left to their own devices are better used as mirrors for us than simply cautionary tales because the truth is that without God, we are all depraved and sinful people without hope ourselves to be counted among the unrighteous as Paul writes in Romans chapter 3. Well, just in case we were tempted to forget the lesson of Genesis 19 and, and default to the attitude that there are indeed good guys and bad guys, that while there are some who embody evil like those terrible people in Sodom, there are others, a group in which we likely include ourselves, who act rightly and therefore deserve the blessing of God. But when we turn the page into Genesis 20, we're emphatically reminded that such a dichotomy does not exist, and that Paul was right when he said, there is no one righteous. See, if we are at all inclined to distance ourselves from the unrighteous we read about in chapter 19, shaking our heads and our fists at their evil while patting ourselves on the back for being nothing like them, Genesis 20 is a sobering passage as we witness the patriarch of the faith himself proved to be just as prone to sin. So this morning, as we walk through this text that we just read, as we look at Abraham's example of unrighteousness, we're going to unpack what this account tells us both about sin and about God as it relates to all of us. So let's start with some context, and then we'll get to asking our questions. What does this passage teach us about sin and about God? And the context starts in verse 1. Now Abraham moved on from there into the region of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. For a while he stayed in Gerar. Okay, so the last time we encountered Abraham, he was living in Hebron. Okay, so I've got a map that we can kind of look at. So he was living in Hebron, where he had chosen to settle as his nephew Lot settled east near Sodom. And Abraham stayed in Hebron for roughly 20 years or so. But today's text begins with Abraham moving on from Hebron, becoming nomadic again as he had been before he settled there, right? And our text says that he lived briefly in the region between Kadesh and Shur before ultimately coming to stay close to Gerar. 
Now, our text gives us no reason why Abraham uprooted and began to wander again out of the region in which he had lived for 20 years. Perhaps looking down on the valley towards the ruins of Sodom and Gomorrah, assuming that his nephew Lot had passed and the destruction was just too hard for him and he needed to move out of view. Or maybe he had only stayed in Hebron all this time so that he was close enough to watch over his nephew, able to come to his rescue as he had done before, and this was no longer necessary. We don't know. But regardless, Abraham leaves his home of 20 years and finds himself as a sojourner once again, an alien at the mercy of the nations of Canaan, in this case, the kingdom of Gerar. And as we see, it doesn't take very long for Abraham to revert back to his old ways that he employed when he was a wanderer years before. Verse 2. And there, Abraham said of his wife, Sarah, she is my sister. Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. Here, friends, is where the deja vu should come in. Right? This is a familiar script. Just as he did in Egypt in chapter 12, Abraham lies about Sarah, likely for the same two reasons as he did back then. First, in order to protect himself from locals who may kill him in order to make her a widow that they could claim for themselves. And secondly, to encourage the generosity and kindness from the locals who would be trying to bribe or coerce him as her brother to grant her to them in marriage. Well, this decision to be deceitful to his own advantage goes exactly how it did in Egypt with the king, this time King Abimelech, taking this single woman, or so he thought, as a part of his own harem. And just like in Egypt, Abraham finds that he's not only put his wife in jeopardy, who he has no ability to get back, but he's put the very promise of God in jeopardy with Sarah's miraculously reopened womb, now the property of another man. Now before we move on, can I just point out the obvious here? Sarah must have been one good-looking old lady. <laughs> I mean... At this point, she's 89 years old when Abimelech takes her. And while there is something to be said about her age in relation to their longer lifespan, right? Many scholars contend that, well, 89 back then might look more like 45 or 50 today. And we also don't know how old Abimelech was. Maybe he himself was 120. But it does seem exceptionally strange to think of a king saying, welcome to my harem. You can park your walker over there. <laughs> but who are we to judge? And I believe that this only serves to accentuate Sarah's abnormal and exceptional and evidently ageless beauty. But regardless, what we see here is Abraham acting despicably again, right? So fearful of what man might do to him that he stops trusting in God, the one who has continued to prove himself to Abraham. And this fear and lack of trust in God leads him to sin. 
leads him to participate in deception, in failing to protect his wife, dangerously objectifying her, not unlike the action of Lot and his daughters that we read a couple weeks ago. And in doing this, Abraham proves what we talked about a little bit earlier, that sin is universal. Right? This is the first thing we learn about sin in this passage. Sin is universal. Right? This text reminds us that sin is an inevitability for all those of us who have breath in our lungs. It is a shared human condition. At this point, uh, or, or this point in particularly, is, is um, emphasized here in the text by the author. You see, immediately after the account of Sodom that exposes the sin of the people in the valley, including Lot and his family, the sin of Abraham here is thrown on the pile. Right? The hero of this entire story, the one who's been labeled a friend of God, is presented in the same light and in the same breath as all the rest. This text, originally without chapter headings, right? There was no chapter 18, then 19, then 20, anything like that. It reads like one narrative that puts Sodom and Lot and Lot's daughters and Abraham all in the same conversation as those who act unrighteously and are in desperate need of the grace of God. As Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all has no exceptions. This is the consistent testimony of the scriptures, even when it comes to those who are presented as faithful or godly. Abraham, the righteous, as we see, has a habit of being intentionally deceitful. He's had a child with his wife's slave and nearly lost his wife twice in the name of self-protection. David, as we continue to read on in the scriptures, known as the man after God's own heart, commits adultery with a woman named Bathsheba and arranges for the murder of her husband to cover it up. Peter, one of Jesus' best earthly friends and leader of the New Testament church, denies Jesus three times, lying about his identity and relation to Christ, and continually battles judgment and favoritism in his later years. Right? And we could go on, but one thing that the scriptures make plain, as evidenced by our text today, is that no one is immune from sin, and no one is exempt from the necessity of the grace of God. Now, this truth doesn't mean that we should then all be okay with sin, that we embrace its inevitability. Rather, it means that we need to be on guard and look for it when it creeps into our lives, which it will. And we need to grant grace to others when it inevitably shows up in theirs. But friends, make no mistake, sin is universal. Moving on, the second thing we notice about sin in this text is that sin is repetitive. Right? Abraham here doesn't just disobey God. He doesn't just mess up. He actually does the exact same thing that got him into this mess before. Believe it or not, for those of you who are just joining us, Abraham had lost his wife before pulling the exact same stunt in Egypt until God miraculously intervened. Right? You would think 
that he would have learned his lesson, right? I was actually talking about this story around the dinner table with my daughter, and, and she kind of said, well, we've heard this story. And I said, no, he does it again. And she's like, what? How does he not understand? How did he not learn? Right, this passage is the embodiment of Proverbs 26, 11. As a dog returns to its vomit, so fools repeat their folly. But church, we shouldn't be all that surprised, should we? There is a habitual nature to sin, isn't there? As similar temptations re-rear their heads for all of us. Uh, just a few months ago, I read uh, the autobiography of tennis player Andre Agassi. And uh, as he recalled preparing for different opponents throughout his career, a major aspect of his success was determining his, weakness, his opponent's weaknesses and then exploiting those weaknesses throughout his matches. Now, each player had unique strengths and weaknesses, and for Agassi, the goal was to find out where he had had success against an opponent before, where that opponent struggled, and to continue to exploit that weakness. So, for example, if a player had a weak backhand, Agassi would hit 70 to 80 percent of his shots to the opponent's backhand. Every chance he had to hit it to the backhand, he would. And here's the thing, church. Our enemy uses the very same tactic. He finds out where we are weak, where we have fallen in the past, where we have compromised or are susceptible to fall, and he continues to try and exploit our weaknesses. That is why, for many of us, the sins that plague us today are often the same things that we've struggled with for a long time. Because those are our areas of weakness, and those are the things that the enemy tries to tempt us with. For Abraham, he struggled with fear, right? And the temptation he was susceptible to was taking his protection into his own hands through deceitful schemes. And here's the thing. Here's where we need to be humble and gracious, church. You see... We all have different weaknesses or susceptibilities, right? The thing that is a deadly lure for you may be something that I don't find particularly tempting or even understand how anyone could give in to that vice. And so it, with that attitude, it may mean that I show little grace to those who do. I may come across as judgmental or condemning or uh, not understanding, which encourages those who are struggling in this way to keep it a secret, to keep it to themselves, not seek help, not attempt to grow, which just serves to further set them up for continued struggle and a perpetual cycle of habitual sin. Right, friends, we know that we all sin. And part of being the church is bearing each other's burdens. Galatians 6.2 says, even when the burdens look entirely different from our own, even when we find ourselves back again in the same places walking alongside our brothers and sisters again and again, because as we see, sin is repetitive and we're all susceptible to sinful habits. Well, the third thing we see in this text regarding sin is that sin is inexcusable. Sin is inexcusable. And, and by that, I don't mean that sin is unforgivable. It absolutely is, thanks to the mercy of Christ displayed on the cross. But what I mean is that the excuses we make when it comes to our sin, 
The things that we try to convince ourselves of, of to let ourselves off the hook just don't hold up. We see this clearly in our text this morning as Abraham, if you notice, goes through a list of excuses to justify his own behavior here. Right, so when we move all the way down to verse 9, when Abimelech takes Abraham to task, asking him, why did you lie? Why did you tell us that Sarah was your sister? Abraham goes through a Rolodex of excuses. And these are the same excuses that I think we often use today to justify our own sin. And Abraham starts with the excuse of self-victimization. Right, verse 11. Abraham replied, I said to myself, there is surely no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. You see what Abraham does here? He tries to make himself out to be the victim. Right? His response to why he lied was essentially, well, you guys are so scary and godless that I was afraid. Right? Making it seem like he really had no choice. Abraham tries to justify his sin by playing the victim, and surely a victim can't be held accountable. And I don't know if you've noticed, church, but this is something that we see regularly in our culture today, isn't it? Individuals or groups of people try to out-victim each other you know, I was scared, or I was hurt, or I was backed into a corner, and then blame the other party for the things that they themselves have done. And it sounds something like this. You know, I wouldn't need to steal if my boss didn't take advantage of me and paid me more. Right? I'm the victim. Or I only cheated on you because you didn't give me the love that I needed. Right? I'm the victim here. But the Bible doesn't let us explain away our sin in this way. Listen to what James, the brother of Jesus, says about sin. He says, each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Their own evil desire. Friends, we sin out of our own brokenness, out of our own depravity, and the responsibility lies with us. Now notice that all of this, Abraham's reasoning, was all in his head too. Right? He actually projected intent onto, and I don't know if this is a word, but the Gerarians, that's what I'm going to call them. Right? He says in verse 11, I said to myself, right? or simply, you know, I thought that you guys were godless and mean. Right? But Abraham had no concrete reason to believe what he feared, aside from how he had built it up in his own head. And friends, we do that too, don't we? We let our imaginations take over. We attribute intent on behalf of others, and then we feel justified in how we respond based on our own created narratives. Well, in Abraham's scenario, when all was said and done, his thoughts proved to be wrong. In fact, Abimelech is the one who actually shows a fear of God in this text. Did you notice that? Well, Abraham despairs not a fear of God, but a fear of man. 
Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann writes, he says, well, Abraham reports that he acted because Abimelech did not fear God. It's evident that one, Abimelech did fear God, and two, Abraham feared many things more than he feared God. Thus, the contrast is made that the one most directly called to faith and fear in God is the one who models faithlessness and fearfulness. Self-victimization, church, is no excuse for sin. Acting upon our, what our own imaginations have conjured up is no excuse for sin. We are all accountable for what we do. And so Abraham's first excuse doesn't hold up very well. Well, I think he realizes this because he moves on to another one. Next, Abraham uses the excuse of technicality. Right? The excuse of technicality. Look at verse 12. He says, besides, she really is my sister, right? The daughter of my father, though not of my mother. And then she became my wife, right? She's my sister. Technically, she is my sister, right? Abraham, who knew that he was being deceitful, right? This is a, a plan that he came up with many years ago. He knew he was being deceitful, justifies his deceit by pointing out that what he said was half true. Right? He emphasizes the truthfulness of what he said and ignores or downplays the part that he left out. But as uh, Benjamin Franklin is quoted as saying, half a truth is often a great lie. Technically, I didn't do anything wrong usually means that something wrong was done. Or technically, it was somebody else who pulled the trigger usually means that the one who didn't is the reason it was pulled. And here, technically she is my sister, is a lame excuse for not sharing that Sarah was in fact more accurately his wife. Church, an intentional half-truth is a whole deception. And when we play the technicality game, we prove that we're actually not interested in truth or truthfulness as much as our own self-justification or declared innocence. Well, without taking a breath, Abraham moves on to the next, next excuse, the excuse of normalcy. Verse 13, he says, And when God had me wander from my father's household, I said to her, This is how you can show your love to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, he is my brother. You see what Abraham's doing here? Abraham, in a sense, says, What's the big deal? We do this all the time. Right? We decided this a long time ago. It's nothing personal, right? We, we tell everyone this lie. No big deal. This is normal behavior. We don't even think about it anymore, which makes this even crazier, right? We know of two of these stories, but how many times did they lie in this way over the years that they traveled? For us, friends, this excuse of normalcy maybe takes a bit of a different shape but we still use it. Does this ring a bell for anyone? Well, everybody does it. Everyone watches this stuff. All my friends share their Netflix accounts. Everyone stretches the truth a little bit. No one actually reports that to the government. Have you heard any of those statements before? This uh, past Monday, my son got his driver's license. Yes, I'm telling you this as a warning to be extra cautious out there. No, just joking. He'll be just as good a driver as most of us. 
Does that make you feel better when you look around? Anyways, the reason I bring this up is that while he did pass his test, there were a few things that he didn't do perfectly and that the driver tester pointed out when they were finished. And one of the things that he did wrong was that he failed to signal when he was backing out of his parking spot. Now, some of you are like, that's a thing? That's what I thought. But when when McAllister told me this, you know what my immediate response was? Nobody does that. Right? No big deal. That's not a problem. Well, the reality is that no matter what I think about it, or how many of us actually signal when we reverse out of a parking spot, that signaling out of a parking spot is the rule of the road in Manitoba. And how many of us actually follow the rule has no bearing on its legitimacy. And for one to follow the rules, they need to signal as they reverse out of their spot. Well, in the same way, church, sin is sin. And no matter how prevalent a particular sin is in our culture, or how desensitized we are to it, has no bearing on its legitimacy and does nothing to make it acceptable. Those who are called to follow Christ aren't called to do as everyone else does. They're called to be holy as God is holy, 1 Peter 1.16. And for Abraham, it didn't matter that they had made a habit of sinning, as if that makes things better. It doesn't matter that they had played this charade before. It did nothing to justify their sin in this instance. And so we're left with another bad excuse, Abraham. Well, finally, Abraham, while it's a little bit harder to catch, uses the excuse of blame or passing the buck. Look closely at verse 13. And when God had me wander from my father's household, when what? When God made me leave my home, sojourning around, putting ourselves in dangerous circumstances, we had to come up with a way of protecting ourselves. Abraham blames God here. I wouldn't have had to do this if God hadn't put me in this position. He should shoulder some of the blame, shouldn't he? And church, this is something that we have in our excuse tool belt as well, isn't it? We blame God like Abraham did for the situations that we find ourselves in. Or for the way that we are, for our temperament, for our sinful nature. God made me this way. It's who I am. Or we blame others, right? They did it first. They made me do it. We blame the, the way that our parents raised us or whatever we can possibly point to that doesn't land squarely on our shoulders. We too, like Abraham, love to play the blame game. And church, we come by this one honestly. Do you remember way back in Genesis 3 when the first sin was found out? God asked Adam, what he had done in eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the very first excuse for sin is in Genesis 3.12. Adam says this, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Right here, Adam blames Eve and God. Right, saying it's her fault, she gave it to me, and you're the one who put her here. If you think about it, it's a bunch of people's fault, but not mine. 
Now, likely, God doing everything in his power not to eliminate Adam in that moment turns to Eve, who herself points to a snake, saying, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. It's your creatures who did this. It's his fault. In the aftermath of the very first sin, humans were already passing the buck. And Abraham, and we, if we're honest, have been doing the very same thing ever since. But as we've seen here with Abraham, we are without excuse when it comes to our sin and our own culpability. Now, I know that we've spent most of our time uh, already unpacking sin, that sin is universal, it's repetitive, it is inexcusable. But I want to make sure that we, albeit briefly, look at what we learn about God in this text before we wrap up this morning. You see, in every passage we read, and maybe this is something uh, to take with you as you do your devotions, in every passage, regardless of whatever else is taught, we need to ask what the text tells us about God, about his character, his action, his plan, and his response to our sin. And so I want us to see what God says about himself in this account as he yet again, as he did in Genesis 12, steps in to bail Abraham out. The first thing we see about God emphasized here is that God is just. God is just, which simply means that he does what is right. Now, uh, we unpacked this a few weeks ago in Genesis 18 when Abraham asked God, will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? You remember that's Genesis 18. Well, in our passage today, God shows Abraham the answer to this question, and he does it by protecting Abimelech from sin and its associated consequences. In verse 3, God comes to Abimelech in a dream to let him know that Sarah is married, which is an extremely gracious thing for God to do. Think about it. If God hadn't said anything, Abimelech never would have known and would have sinned against Sarah, Abraham, and God and faced the consequences of adultery. But God, who is just, did not let that happen to an ignorant party and as a result did not end up punishing an innocent man. In verse 6, God says explicitly to Abimelech, he said, I know you did this with a clear conscience and so I have kept you from sinning Against me. That is why I did not let you touch her. Right? God acts justly towards Abimelech, not only protecting him from sin, but from the punishment that would result from him doing something he was ignorant of. Right? God doesn't punish the innocent and he protects victims, of which Abimelech is one in this circumstance. And church, we too can take heart that the one who judges sin is a good and fair judge who does what is right and does what is just. Secondly, we see in our text that God is gracious. And we see this in the grace that he displays for Abraham. Even in the midst of Abraham's sin, now let's label it like it is, his absolute stupidity, Romans 8, 28 still rings true. And we know That in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. God worked, even in this situation, 
for the good of Abraham, who he had called according to his purpose. Right? Look at how the text ends for Abraham. Verse 14. Then Abimelech brought sheep and cattle and male and female slaves and gave them to Abraham, and he returned Sarah his wife to him. And Abimelech said, My land is before you. Live wherever you like. To Sarah he said, I'm giving your brother a thousand shekels of silver. This is to cover the offense against you before all who are with you. You are completely vindicated. It doesn't seem like the ending we would expect. Right? Abraham, who flirted with disaster through his senseless deception by the grace of God, still ends up with sheep and cattle and servants and silver and Sarah back untouched and the promise still intact, not to mention the title to whatever land he desired. It's mind-boggling how these scenarios continue to come out as a net positive for Abraham. Right? He certainly doesn't deserve this ending. But what we learn here, church, is that God's blessing is not dependent upon us, our righteousness, or lack thereof, does not demand anything from God. His purposes will ultimately prevail, even if he needs to overcome severely flawed instruments to do so. And so, church, we can be confident in the grace of God in our own lives as well, both when it comes to, to the forgiveness of sin, but also when it comes to experiencing God's presence and blessing in our lives. And what that means, I think, is that we can abandon things like uh, superstitious Christianity, which tells us that we're in charge of God's grace and blessing in our lives. And if we want God to be good to us, we need to be good ourselves, right? Think about hockey players. They tap things a bunch of times thinking that if I don't tap this six times before the puck is dropped that I'm not going to play a good game, right? Think about that kind of superstition. I think we do that a lot when it comes to God when we convince ourselves that we're in charge of his blessing in our lives, Right, when I grew up, I played a lot of hockey. And while I would never have articulated it this way, I would be extra careful on game days or the night before a big game to be good as good as possible, right? to limit sin, to pursue righteousness because I felt like God would only bless me, that I would only play a good game if my moral righteousness demanded it. Now, I'm not sure how many of us felt that way growing up or maybe still act that way today, but this is an unbiblical understanding of the way that God works. Just look at this account. Abraham sins greatly, deserves punishment, certainly not blessing, and yet God in his grace forgives Abraham of his sin and works all things together for his good. Now again, the lesson is not that we embrace sin. Right? That our actions have no effect and we can do whatever we want. No, 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 no. What it does is it enables us to live in freedom from guilt and shame when we inevitably do mess up. And it gives us the encouragement to move ahead with the assurance of God's love and presence in our lives. I don't need to be perfect for God to love me. I don't need to touch the table six times to preach a good sermon. The wonderful truth is that we can live within 
is that while we are sinners, all of us, right, we've seen that. And while sin is inexcusable, it keeps rearing its head. We serve a God who shows grace to sinners. As John 1.16 says, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Finally, our text teaches us emphatically that God is faithful. God is just, God is good, and God is faithful. Specifically here, he's faithful to accomplish his plan or to do what he says he will do. You see, God has all along, for those of us who have been following in this Genesis narrative, said that Abraham would, one, take possession of a land, two, have a great name, three, become the father of a great nation through whom the entire world would be blessed. If you've been following with us, you've heard this a dozen times. We've heard God reiterate this promise over and over again. And friends, this promise, God's plan for Abraham, does not end with Sarah stuck in the palace of a Canaanite king with no child and Abraham left wandering in the wilderness with one illegitimate slave son to carry on his name. That is not how the story goes. It is not how the promise unfolds. This is not the salvific plan that God had set out from the beginning. And so God, ever faithful to his promises, intervenes to ensure that his purposes will not be thwarted by the unfaithfulness of his partner Abraham. Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner comments on the advancement of God's plan in light of this detour courtesy of Abraham. He says, on the brink of Isaac's birth story, right, that's what we're gonna see as we flip the page. On the brink of Isaac's birth story, Here is the very promise put in jeopardy, traded away for personal safety. If it is ever to be fulfilled, it will owe very little to man. Morally as well as physically, it will clearly have have to be achieved by the grace of God. And as we will see, as we continue to turn the pages in Genesis, it is. And church, what we can take from this is that what God says will come to pass, will come to pass. The promises in God's word are certain, are dependable and true, not because of us, but because of him. As 2 Timothy 2.13 asserts, even if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. Let me say it again. The fulfillment of God's promises, church, do not depend on us. Friends, this is amazing news. No matter how fallible we are, no matter how many times we mess up, no matter how imperfect we are, no matter how we may feel, we can still, by the grace of God, walk in the freedom of forgiveness that comes from Christ. We can live in the blessing that God has for us to live within, and we can participate in what God is doing in the world because of him. Do you remember how God speaks of Abraham here? Did you catch what he said? He said, this man is a prophet. 
Abraham's sin didn't disqualify him from what God wanted to do and who God saw him to be. I pray that we can live in the light of that truth as well. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that that our blessing, that our salvation, that our uh, participation in what you're doing doesn't depend on how perfect we are, on our own righteousness. It depends on who you are, and you are perfect, and you are good, and you have a plan that beyond our wildest imaginations includes us. God, we thank you for caring for people like Abraham, because if you can grant grace to him, you can certainly grant grace to us as well. God, may we understand that we are sinners. But may we also understand that we serve a God who loves and forgives and saves sinners. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening with us. For more information about our church or upcoming services and events, please visit us at grantmemorial.ca or on social media at at grantmemorialchurch.com.